0: Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School Right here in the heart of Chicago I pray that you find hope and peace In the message of Christ and Him Crucified for you in your life right now Thank you for listening And please, if you'd like to support the mission Going on right here uh, Please go to our webpage stjames-lutheran.org To donate Thank you Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Each and every society across this great big world of ours faces a problem about once a generation, and that problem is this they're invaded by barbarians. These barbarians come into our culture and society. They have no knowledge of our language, our customs, what it means to be a part of the society they live in. They kick, claw, occasionally they bite those who would be in authority over them. And if you encounter one of these barbarians, you must wonder to yourself whether or not society can survive going into the future. Every generation, we encounter a wave of barbarians, and we call these barbarians children. It's not the fault of kids that they come into the world as barbarians, because this is part of what it means to be a parent, to be a teacher. We're raising our children to understand right and wrong, not to kick and bite, not to use potty words, as we said in the children's sermon earlier. Because ultimately, this is all about what it means to raise people into good, upstanding citizens. But here's the problem. They have to be told what to do and what not to do. Kids learn from experience. They have to know that the stove is hot because not only do they have to touch or uh, to hear those words, but they probably have to touch it themselves to figure out what's going on there. The point is, kids have to be instructed in what it means to be good, what it means to be virtuous, and what it means to be a good citizen. And it's through teaching the least of these that we raise up people to be who they're meant to be so that our society can continue to flourish and families continue to thrive. But the point is that they are, when they begin, the least of these, right? We take them, we raise them, we love them, we cherish them, but there's always growth implied there. We very rarely would hold up, oh, I don't know, my two-and-a-half-year-old and say that they are the paragon of virtue and they're exactly what it means to be a disciple and live life as a Christian, right? We don't do that in any other field of life, in our homes, in our careers, in our culture. We would not say they're the example that we should strive toward. We love them, we cherish them, but generally they've got some learning And some growing to do. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting us to see. He's trying to shock us by saying a child is the model of discipleship, right? They're a heritage from the Lord, of course, but even more than that, their total dependence is what's at the heart of our reading for today. You see, the disciples are gathered together doing what they often do, which is arguing amongst themselves, like kids on the school playground. I may have overheard some of these conversations at St. James in my time here. And they're asking, who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who's top dog in the heavenly kingdom? And Jesus flips the script. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn, almost repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And here, like other times, the disciples are placing the emphasis of their faith in all the wrong places. They probably thought to be greatest in the kingdom meant to be the most faithful. Maybe it meant doing good works, whoever had the most of those. Maybe it's the person who cultivated the most virtue. Maybe it's the person who would follow Jesus all the way to the end. You can certainly imagine someone like our friend Peter thinking exactly that. Maybe if you're in my religion class, you think whoever memorized the most Bible verses, despite it being a bonus point, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But surely the point is, someone who valued Biblical teaching, God's words would be the greatest in the heavenly kingdom. And I think we do the same line of thinking in every other aspect of our lives. We compare ourselves to those at work, those in our family uh, lives. We measure ourselves against the people around us, right? We want to know that we're the greatest. We want to know maybe we're the most engaged. We volunteer and we sign up for the most things. We have the best. Church, best pastor, best worship, whatever the case is, we want to know that we are doing the best. We pride ourselves on being the most knowledgeable, the most reasonable, and the most devout compared to the people either within the sanctuary walls or outside of them. So Jesus changes the conversation. He puts a child in front of us and says, This is the model of faith. The least among us is in fact the greatest. Our reason doesn't get us far, our virtue doesn't get us far, our knowledge doesn't get us very far. Instead, this child reminds us how very far off we are from the model of discipleship. Because if we're looking for characteristics that kids have, it reminds us that the economy of God is very different than our own, right? That in God's placing childhood in front of us as the model of discipleship, we are reminded that it is total dependence and reception of God's good gifts that qualifies us to be the greatest. That's why Jesus tells us to become once again like little children. Become somebody unlearned and defenseless who has to, as Martin Luther says, call upon God as their dear father, and we as his dear children. Reminder that as I became a parent, kids can't do a lot on their own. Parents have to care for and provide in almost every aspect of raising their children. So Jesus encourages his audience then, and us today, to return to the Lord our God. To become once again dependent on him for every good and gracious gift. That was the reminder throughout the entire biblical narrative that God had rescued his people. He supplied their needs time and time again. He gave them their identity as his own children. And what could they do to earn it? Absolutely nothing. They simply were given the status as members of the household because God is good and God is gracious. And ultimately... God would let nothing get in the way of the relationship He desired with His children. God, out of this crazy, abundant love that He has for us, goes all the way to the cross, atoning for sin, paying for sin with His death upon the cross, and giving new life in its place purely because He is good and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So we can joyfully say we are God's children. We just saw that that was true in baptism, where he claimed us as his own. And now, instead of looking to get ahead, we can focus on all that God does for us. We can see that the church is, in fact, a very equal place to be. Why? Because we each are in need of what God provides. His forgiveness, life, and salvation, which was bought with the precious blood of Christ Jesus. When we realize that today's reading in Matthew 18 is all about Jesus seeking and saving the lost, we can see why he brings up the parable of the lost sheep to tie together with this very idea. If you look at the reading, it says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he's encouraging us to see ourselves in this story, that we have been brought into his church, many of us as infants, and made no longer lost but found sheep called to be a member of this flock that God has gathered together here. And embedded in the story, we see the crazy, uh, limitless love of God, our Heavenly Father. Because there is a sort of upside-downness to this story. Most of us would not leave the 99 in order to go find that one sheep that's gone astray. And yet our good shepherd does exactly this— He seeks that one lost sheep so they might be joyfully reunited to the flock that they've been called to be a part of. So we're meant to see ourselves in the story. We are that lost sheep. But now we have come to be part of God's flock where we receive every good and gracious gift from this good shepherd who is called out to us here. So to answer that question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, it's not about who's earned it. It's about who is dependent upon God. Who has heard the gospel and trusted in these promises that God has made. Because the reality is we can't earn our salvation. We are dependent upon this God who sends his Son so that we might have life and have it abundantly. It's not intuitive because the rest of our lives don't work this way. The rest of our lives we get out what we've put in. But here we're reminded that God is the only one who can love us perfectly, that God is ultimately the one who takes away our sin. He's the one who reverses the curse of death and gives us life eternal in its place. None of these things could we earn. We could not become the greatest, but we've still been given these things because we have a kind, benevolent Father who withholds no good gift from his children. It's interesting to note, too, that this isn't a dispute that's only happening today, but this discussion was happening in the Reformation as well. Right at the heart of one of these discussions, there was a debate over what faith was all about and whether faith alone really saves. The Roman Catholic theologians argued that faith alone couldn't save because faith was a habit. It was something taught and something we had to learn. Martin Luther reminded us now and them at the time that that's actually not what faith is about. Faith, in the, faith is about fear, love, and trust. In other words, it's a relational word. It's something that we don't get better at, but it's freely given as a member of the household of faith. So faith is worked in our hearts and in our minds by the Holy Spirit. It's not something we accomplish for ourselves. It is a strong reminder that the Reformation is just as necessary today as it was 500 years ago because we still need to be called back to that fundamental relationship as we fear, love, and trust in God our Heavenly Father who has made himself richly available through the work of Christ Jesus. And that's ultimately the point. That's what this whole story is driving towards, right? We ultimately gather together week in and week out because, yes, we're lifelong learners, and we need to hear what Christ is saying. But more importantly, we believe in the real presence, right? We, we confess that when it comes to the Lord's Supper. But pay attention to the end of the Gospel reading. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. So like children cling to their parent when they're anxious or distressed, we have the ability to cling to God, our Heavenly Father, not in some abstract way, but in a profoundly real way, as we gather together knowing that Christ is truly present because the church has gathered together. Two or three, there Jesus is. So our Lord is still in an active way calling us by the gospel, training us up as his children. He's teaching us what it means to be a member of the church and to rely on God for every good and gracious thing. Jesus is using the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, to accomplish this very thing. So as childlike disciples, we're able to gather together at the feet of Jesus and learn what he has to say, hear his promises as we're forgiven and renewed and strengthened by his word and by his sacraments. So far from being left alone in the darkness, unsure of what it means to be a disciple, our minds are continually enlightened by Christian hope, love, and charity as it is found in Christ Jesus' teaching. And from there, we're able to approach our neighbor in a profound way, recognizing that not only is Jesus teaching that person, but like us, they, us, all together, were that lost sheep that's been brought back into the fold. God has worked good on our behalf in all circumstances, and so we can recognize as that lost sheep that we we are reliant on Christ alone. So ultimately, all of Matthew 18 is that reminder that we're saved by grace through faith. And this is nothing that we can work for ourselves, but instead it is a gift that God freely gives to his children, whom he has called by his word, washed in baptism, and made his own. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.